Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Um, Today's guest, you're going to love. You're going to love her story. You're going to love, more importantly, what her story and her life story has led her through both her journey and her education on what it means to you and how it'll help you pursue your purpose a little bit more, I think, with a little more passion. So everybody knows this whole, it's the Geico commercial, right? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that health benefits and staying in shape, eating right, physical fitness, that all of those are, are really important. But what we've learned, especially recently in our life, is that mental fitness is equally as important, but most of us don't give as much consideration to what that means. We need to train our cognitive muscles to be adaptive and resilient, to thrive in life's unrelenting pace of change. I thought I was the only one who had an unrelenting pace of change lifestyle, but apparently there's more out there. Our guest today is Wendy Swire, an author, speaker, professor, and leadership consultant who's best known as the Brain Geek, I love that, Brain Geek executive coach to her C-suite clients. As founder of the DC Neuro Leadership Group and certified mental fitness coach, ooh, that means I'm probably going to get some some free uh, coaching here today because I'm certainly going to need that. She has helped thousands better understand their brains to create laser-focused results by moving from their saboteur to the sage brain. Oh, that's going to be fun to unpack. So, Wendy, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. I am delighted to be here. It's a real privilege to speak with you and your uh, audience today. Yeah, we're honored to have you. So, I'll give you a little bit of fair warning, and you've obviously listened to some of the episodes before. We always like to start by going all the way back, and we want to learn a little bit about your origin story. So, what was it Let's go back to that. He goes back as far as you want, but I, I say that that five-year-old Wendy that made you decide over your life's journey and experiences, whether it was family, friends, coaches, somewhere along that journey, you became who you are today. But usually it gets cemented in early on, some of our passions and some of our experiences in your why. So let's take us back to that early stage, your origin, and tell us that story. Oh, absolutely. I love that question. So I'm actually from um, right outside Chicago, Illinois, a suburb called Evanston. Some of your listeners may know it if you're a football fan, Big Ten, you know, near Northwestern University. Um, And I'm from a fairly large family. I have three older sisters. I was the youngest and I was very blessed. I had a very um, happy childhood. A very, my father was and my mother were, you know, loving, loving parents. My father was, um, had he had a really interesting story. So my father was very much kind of rags, rags to riches, didn't have a father, you know, depression child. And he really remade himself and became a successful entrepreneur. So I have some entrepreneur blood in me, I always say. Um, but my father also just had a lot of charisma and love for what he did. And he instilled that, that you can have a lot of pride in your work. So I I had a role model of someone who really enjoyed their work, felt they were, um, he was in business, felt that he was doing good in the world, and he just had a lot of passion and joy. So, you know, I grew up, he was singing, we sang a lot. I had a lot of joy growing up. So I think that's one piece. So I was very, very lucky. I learned probably two important lessons from my father. I think the first is work ethic, work ethic. And he always said, you don't have to be the smartest, but you can outwork anybody. 
So I've always, I started, you know, babysitting at age, I don't know, 10. I've worked my entire life. I enjoy work. I find meaning from it. So that was the first thing I think he instilled. Um, the, the second thing he really, in my both my parents did, was just you can learn. Voracious curiosity. If you're curious about something, go after it. If you're curious about learning, I don't know, let's say what's going on in Bitcoin, go learn it. Go, go learn about it. If you're learning, you know, you're interested in learning what's going on in, you know, anything in business, in life, parenting, you know, and now with the internet, it's easier. You can have resources, but we went to the library a lot. So, you know, one of my prized possessions is my library card. So I'm a voracious reader. So that was sort of my origin, origin story. Um, and I think the next piece is, you know, I had a dream of what I wanted to do as a, as a high schooler, as a young person, as a kid. I really wanted, I was very interested in politics and policy and international things. Um, I knew I wanted to travel a lot, but I was really interested on in just issues of poverty and why are some people poor and why are some countries poor? So I went to college. Actually, that's what got me to the East Coast. I went to college on the East Coast and I studied international economics and I really, really wanted to solve Latin American poverty, like poverty. And I actually had the hubris to think I could do it. I was young and I'm going to do it. So I really wanted to be a diplomat. I'm going to go be a diplomat. I'm going to work for the World Bank or the State Department. I studied it and I want to, I really want to do this for, this is my life's work. I'm going to live overseas and work on these important, important heavy issues, right? Um, and I then went to Wall Street as part of this plan. I had a plan when I was 18, and this was for me to be trained as a diplomat. Um, and I decided to go work on Wall Street. So I have a you know finance background because I thought that would set me up to understand inside the system. I didn't want I wanted to understand a system that I wanted to change, right? Um, I go off, I'm going off, and then I go to diplomacy school. So I have a master's in diplomacy. I went to school in Boston for that. Uh, and I'm off. I'm working at the State Department, I'm overseas, and I'm about, you know, going to get ready to go do this career. And I get a call that the patriarch of my family, I'm in my mid-20s, has very serious cancer. And this was a long, many, many years ago. And it was a, it was a fork in the road. It really is. And I think all of us feel this, Jeff, I'm sure, and your listeners, you get in a fork in the road and you really have to make those tough choices. Do I do X or do I do Y? And I said, you know what? My family's too important to me. I cannot be off living off, I mean, in, in wonderful parts of the world, but I can't be in, you know, Santiago or I can't be in Nairobi. I need to be closer to my family. And so that dream ended. Um, well, let's fast forward. I ended up in Washington, D.C., working in international you know, policy work. And that kind of got me, you know, other things happened from there, but my career really happened because while I was in graduate school training to be this diplomat, got really interested and I studied negotiations and conflict resolution. And I did it with the world expert at Harvard. I had a, you know, was able to study at Harvard and Tufts. Um, and I was really interested in negotiation and conflict resolution. Well, when the dream of being a diplomat died, I ended up doing more work in conflict resolution and negotiation and facilitation, and I became a manager. So my career really blossomed because I was interested, what I was interested in something after that door closed. So I think one takeaway is if something doesn't happen, it's a gift and an opportunity. You just don't know. You don't know what, where it's going to take you. Be curious, be flexible, be open, and things happen. And, and, the irony is, fast forward 10 years later, 15 years later, I now go overseas to train and teach diplomats around the world 
I get to do the job that I wanted to do, but now I get to come in as a facilitator or trainer and it's way better <laughs> and coach. So I don't have to live, you know, I can live here, uh, but I get to be involved in that work and support these leaders. So it all came full circle. Um, so that was sort of one, I think that, I think that's a, a lot of origin story. <laughs> wow. What a, what a fascinating journey and what, you know, what you must've seen and probably still see in some of the circles that Obviously, you know, politics is a lightning rod. It's always been, but I think it's gotten even worse, you know, lately in the past decade. But when you think about your, what I'm always curious about is on the communication side of this, like the negotiation piece and, and like you're talking about, when did you get really kind of fascinated with the study of the brain uh, relative to all the things that you mentioned? That's another coincidence. I mean, that's another one. I did not plan my career. It came to me. It literally came to me. I didn't. Did you come off to want to be an executive coach? No. Um, after I started my firm in, in mediation and conflict resolution, clients just kept on asking me to do things. So I ended up being an executive coach. So let's fast forward. It's now 2009, 2007, 2009. I'm in a training program to train to get my credentials. I had been coaching, but I went, I was at Georgetown getting my credentials. And someone literally in the first day, just like you're listening to this podcast, something can spark a curiosity you don't even expect. And I heard a fact about the brain that you cannot have a positive emotion and a negative emotion at the same time. You cannot, your brain does not allow you to feel anger and frustration and joy and love and empathy at the same time. We don't have the chemicals to support that. You have to have one emotion secretes one neurochemical, those powerful chemicals in the brain, and then another one will have another one. So, and I just, for whatever reason, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I want to learn more. I want to learn more. A colleague handed me a book on neuroleadership, and I, I was just hooked. I said, I must learn this. And this was in 2007. People were not talking about the brain that much back then. Some people were. So I got very I got very involved in the field of neuroleadership just out of curiosity. And since then, I study the brain intensely. I work with neuroscientists. I started the DC Neuroleadership Salon that everyone is welcome to join. It's open for all. We're virtual now after the pandemic. So you just never know. So right now, and my, my goal now is to take complex brain science and explain it at the most simple level so every single person can understand how to get the most out of your brain and how to be mentally fit. So it's because literally someone read a fact in a class and I, someone handed me a book. That's how I got interested. Yeah, well, that's, first of all, that, the level of curiosity you mentioned in your origin story, right? That's, we should all possess that same degree of curiosity. I'm constantly telling my kids, they're, you know, 22, 17, and 9. That hey, the, the, one of the best traits you can ever have in life is is being curious, but not just being curious for curious' sake. Being curious for discovery's sake, right? Is be curious and then go discover, and and then take it a step further, which you touched on. One of my favorite, you almost said it too. It's one of my favorite Einstein quotes: "Is if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough." So then go discover and then go understand and then simplify it for others so that they can understand. 
Yeah, I love that. Not only for parents, you know, business leaders, if you've got an employee who comes to you, let's say you have someone and they, you know, you give them a report and they reformat it and they want to make it look good. Instead of getting frustrated, say that person is, you know, again, coaching, that person's really interested in design or how things look or layout. There's a spark of creativity there. How do I support that? You know, parents, if your child is interested in I know a lot of parents are concerned gaming, you know, it's controversial, but if they have an interest in games, then let's, well, maybe let's look at game design or Legos or anything, you know, just see if you can just spark it, just spark it any way. And, um, you know, if they're interested in, you know, certain things, how do you just, oh, that's really interesting. Let's explore a little bit more. So it's, it is a superpower to be curious. And as Peter Drucker says, the only skill that's needed in this century is to learn unlearn and relearn. We have to be able to do this. We have to keep learning because of the pace of change. But we're not biologically wired for that, are we, Wendy? We're, we're, we're wired for learning and then our confirmation bias kicks in and all we're willing to do is look for any reasons to support what we think we already know. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. You have to train yourself. This is, this is uh, in the intro, you said the field of mental fitness is really interesting. And it's it's sort of a subset of mental health. I'm not a ment- I'm an economist and a banker by training, um, but it is the ability to go in there and train yourself to train the certain thought patterns to be able to do this. And the cool thing about curiosity, it does release tremendous amounts of dopamine, which is a feel-good um a feel-good chemical, it also has been shown to grow like neurogenesis. So it really does have some really cool properties in terms of neuroplasticity. Yeah, I love that. And I love, you know, your work's been through um, a lot of through the coaching lens and the, you know, the executive conversation lens and a lot of facilitation, negotiation, a lot of that. Um, and I think one of the challenges we're seeing today, and we, Dr. Dan Doherty, who's our president now, at Brain Trust, and he did his PhD work. He, he he's one of those crazy guys that went back to get his PhD when he was forty-seven. You know, it's one of those guys. Oh, love um, it. I'm so he's he's basically just just doing what you're <laughs> saying, right? Is being curious and continuing to learn. But in his work and looking at the dyads, that those one-to-one conversations and communications, so many things that we've learned about the brain over the last fifteen years have really started to come full force, and then COVID put it all on steroids. Because everyone says, and I, I, I don't even like the term, this great resignation, because I've been calling it the great reflection for a while now, is that as a leader inside a company, whether you have a company of five people or whether you have a company of 5,000 people, you know, people want to feel as though they are pursuing a purpose and that it's accomplishing their personal vision. And if all you do is tell me what you need me to accomplish, I will have a job with you as long as I feel like I can have a job with you that's going to be somewhat fulfilling to me financially, but I'll never feel a purpose with you. So in your work, how do you, how do you help coaches and and executives recognize what we call as a shared vision that it's not just enough to have employees. Like you have to understand their vision for their personal vision so that you can help them align to where the organizational vision is going and feel like they have a cause now versus just a job. Well, first of all, absolutely, A-plus to that, and I, I agree on multiple levels. I think the first level is if people feel the buy-in, they're more, there's a lot of research in this. If people feel the buy-in, they're more likely to do it, and there's higher compliance. A lot of that comes from like the negotiation field. So when you can get buy-in, 
and, and people believe it's their idea, then yes, absolutely, 100%. I think the second thing that's standing out to me and what you said, and, and I really, I, I love what you said, is that it doesn't have to be as hard as you think. People, oh, we have to have these deep things on vision. No. In my book, Anytime Coaching, it's anytime you're looking for how can I make someone better? How can I support their vision? How can I coach them? And it's simple. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be, well, we have to take an hour for a long coaching meeting and I don't have time to do it. If you see something positive, you say it and you reinforce it. You ask open-ended questions. I'm sure we've, you've been talking about this for years. The power of a question, the brain is wired in, in, in pictures, but it's also words really matter. Words really matter. So, you know, for my leaders, my parents who are listening, think about the questions you're asking. I spent a lot of time coaching with my executives on you're asking sloppy questions. You're going to get sloppy results. Ask, you know, you know, what's important to you about X? How can I set you up for success? Open-ended question. You know, what would, you know, what's your aspiration? What is your aspiration? You know, it's three-word question, but why is, you know, the, our company vision is X, Y, and Z. What part of that is most inspiring to you? If you slow down and you just write four or five powerful questions and you use them over and over, then you're doing the work. You're doing it. So a lot of times people think, I just say, look, you know, it can be, in any time, everyday conversations, you can bring out the best in people through language, questions, uh, and looking at how how our visions align. What do you find in your work, um, with, especially over the last couple of years, if you've been coaching executives, do you find where do you where do you find leaders are getting the most stuck? And, and I and I want to ask it in, a, in a, almost a multifaceted way here, because I think what I want you to tie into this is. When I say stuck, it has a, <laughs> I'm not insinuating that they're stuck. It could be stuck in a lot of different ways, right? But what I find is people have mixed up being a manager versus being a coach. And so they get stuck in that in-between mm -hmm. when it comes to the communications they have with their people. So when you've been, when you think about the last even five executive conversations you've had, what have they been working on where they've been stuck and has it had anything to do with their agenda versus the people they're coaching's agenda? or them trying to manage versus leading coach? Is it somewhere in there? Or is it completely somewhere different? So I think, I think we need to make some distinctions. As a manager, as a leader, as a parent, there are times when you absolutely have to direct. Right. It is not appropriate to coach. You need to lead. And I see a lot of people afraid, conflict avoiders, or they want to please everybody. They over-collaborate. There are times for you, that is your job, to take that executive stance and say, this is what we're doing, Okay. That is, and that is as a role as, as, a, as a manager, as a supervisor, as a leader, let's say. But then, then there's other times where, you know, we're going to take on a coaching hat. You've just got to know what hat you're wearing and get clear and communicate that. No, I'm putting on a coaching hat here. I could tell you what to do, Jeff, to solve your sales issue, but I want to, let's take three minutes and, and, and I want to hear what your ideas are. I'm taking off that hat or no, I'm going to give you a consulting hat. Or, you know, be really intentional on your on what hats you wear. So, for example, I think you mentioned your kids. I have two sons and in their 20s. And whenever they come to me, I always say, what do you want out of this conversation? Do you want me to listen? Do you want advice or do you want coaching? What do you need from the conversation? And I will offer that. So that, I think, is such a simple little technique. You say you ask you almost ask your employee 
or your teammate, what do you need from me right now? Um, and often I have clients who over-index. So I'm trying to just have them see you've got multiple tools in your toolbox. Are you overusing one? It's no different than physical fitness. Are you just doing, you know, are you doing too many, you know, certain kinds of um, push-ups and you need to be doing pull-ups or you need to be strengthening other your hamstrings? You know, are you over-relying on muscles? Do you find that, I, and, I, and I, <clears throat> I love this, is that when I find executives and leaders, even middle managers, when they're, when they're really excited about learning more about coaching, I can tell you said the emotion, you can only have one emotion at a time, right? Um, I find that when you talk to their team, they're actually already a really good coach. It's, it's when the people are coming to you um, out of distress at how do I manage better? You tend to find out that they're actually doing nothing correctly. I shouldn't say nothing, but they're, they're really, to your point, they're managing, they're directing all the time as opposed to they're, they're finding that balance between knowing when to manage and direct because it's, it's you, I like to say you, you have to, as a leader, you have to earn the right to be transactional. Mm, that's nice. I like that. Right? You, you, you have to. Otherwise, if you've not built the relational capital, then you, and all you do is be transactional and give direction. Those are the people nobody likes to work for. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're a micromanager. And so it's really, it really comes down to, you know, Socrates, know yourself, Yeah. know yourself. And this also ties in really nicely to, to mental fitness, your saboteurs. Are you a controller? What are you, what are you afraid of? That comes all that kind of, if you, if you are over indexing on, I have to direct over direct, I have to execute. I've got, it's, no one else does it as well as I do. Well, there's a reason then why you're exhausted. You're working 80 hours a week. You can't delegate. So that to me is a saboteur and, and my, the positive intelligence framework in which I am trained in mental fitness, that's a saboteur. What's going to take for you to let go. And then I have other people over delegate. They're just, I'm all about collaboration. And, you know, your people, anybody needs, they need all, they need coaching, they need directing, they need supporting, then they need delegating, they need all the tools in the toolbox. So what's going on with you if you are having a preference? And, you you know, that's what I think makes management and leadership so fascinating. It's a puzzle. Right. It's not if right. you do A to B to C. It's not an analog. It's not an algorithm. It's a human puzzle. And and if you're going like, too busy to do that, that's your job. Your job is to take a few minutes. And we always say, I always tell my clients, when you Japanese proverb, when you slow down, you speed up. Slow down and figure this out, and um, you will get better results. Well, you brought up a great thing that I see a lot is that most of the leadership issues that I see today in, in many of our companies is we have people trying to be individual contributors in a leadership role. And that can be a challenge. Sometimes they were promoted in spite of their own, because of their own individual contributor success. But anyways, that's here and there. What I want to go a little deeper on with the audience is walk us through a little bit of that saboteur evaluation, because, you know, that's been one of your sweet spots, right? Is how, how do I, if I'm a listener, a leader out there today listening, how do I identify, what's the best way for me to identify my, is there primary and secondary, or is it pretty much, there's almost always a primary saboteur? So the good news is at the end of this, you're going to have a way to reach me. And if you do, I will be happy to send your listeners and you, a saboteur assessment. It takes about 10 minutes you can take that will list out your top 10 saboteurs. Um, we have 10 saboteurs. The, the primary saboteur that every human has is called a judge. It's called the master saboteur. You judge yourself, you judge other people, 
and then you judge the circumstances. This isn't fair. This isn't working out. I don't like this. And you also, this is when you're really critical of yourself. That's the judge. Many people may know it as an inner critic, an inner gremlin, but, you know, I, I, we call it the saboteur. Um, other saboteurs can be, um, and, and they all based on wonderful strengths, but people overdo them. So here are some examples. Hyperachiever, people who are just always getting ahead, getting ahead, getting ahead. They're on a treadmill. Um, they're on that hedonic treadmill. Like, you know, once you achieve something, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? That creates burnout. People get um, uh, not only physical, but like mental health tolls, but also uh, for the sake of what are you doing this? So it takes a cold toll. You're never, that's the lie of the saboteur. If you're a hyperachiever, you're never satisfied ever. Nothing can satisfy you. You always have to go after the next thing. You can be a controller. You have to do everything your way. You can be a victim. You can be a pleaser, people pleaser. Someone who's always, they don't, they don't want to have conflict. They want constant harmony. Um, they are, they're losing your own voice. So these are just examples of some of the saboteurs. And they're common, you know, language everyone will pick up. By the way, this assessment has been used around the world. It is used in multiple culture, cultures and languages. So it's not just, you know, for people who are working in corporate America. Anyone can take this thing and it's valid. I have worked with clients internationally who are like, oh, yeah, I know what a controller looks like. I know what an avoider looks like. I know what... Uh, the judge looks like. So how does that, does that resonate with you, Jeff? Well, unfortunately it resonates to the point where I think I might have all 10. <laughs> <laughs> if you, I'm, have you ever found a unicorn like me who has all 10 saboteurs competing for saboteur tree? <laughs> I like well, to make up words too. <laughs> I love that. Here's the secret. We have all 10. There's just a couple that are dominant, the other ones. So I'm doing some very intensive training with the founder of this methodology and positive intelligence. And what I learned is I am like a hyper, you know, achiever, achiever, controller. I'm very restless. Restless is, oh, what's the new thing? I like to do new things. I like variety. I get bored. And I never, ever thought I had a victim saboteur. It was zero on my assessment. Well, sure enough, it was hiding. You know, when you really get into the saboteurs and you do the work, you're like, oh, yeah, it's over here in the corner hiding. I just was paying so much attention to the um, hyperachiever. And the restless. Cause I like, I like, I get, you know, I want to do a variety of things. I'm an right. entrepreneur. Let's do this. So um, yeah, no, you have, you know, some of the, some of them are more dominant, but, and they're there to protect you. You have them for a reason. They really protected you, uh, but they don't serve you after a while. And you've got to use mental fitness training to sort of quiet them down, like turn the music on, on down on these saboteurs. Well, and the hard part is that <clears throat> I was talking, my wife and I were talking about this over the weekend, actually, is that when you go back and reflect on, you know, I always ask people their origin stories, right? Our personalities tend to get cemented in the neural, the neural networks by nine, 10 years old, and they evolve and add, add on to, but your early experiences in life for good or for bad have started to form probably a lot of those adolescent saboteurs, right? That are created in your brain that then manifest themselves and get revealed more and more as you get older and get into different environments and different circumstances. And then when you're in the workplace, it might be easy to notice an overachiever um, when the root might be somewhere completely different, but it's manifesting itself every day as, yeah. an, as that. And I love the psychology behind that, but the, the biology to me and the physiology is also so fascinating because those neural networks that we form, we can actually prune and reform. Yes. Yes. And that's you, what I was you mentioned the yeah. neuroplasticity piece and I'm guessing that's 
my question is, is now people are going to be able to go and take the assessment and learn a lot about it from you. But I want to touch on it a little bit. The bridge from that to I'm guessing into the sage brain is knowing how to prune some of those neural networks and creating some new paths to, to helping. Is that right? Yeah. Well, yes. And let's build. Yes. And so let's build upon it. So a couple things. The first thing is absolutely. You, you, you have these um, pathways. They're very cemented, you know, however, as you know, because I know you're a fan of neuroplasticity from listening to the show, you can rewire. You can rewire. So one of the things I didn't share in my origin story, I forgot to do it, I will share now, is I was off doing my stuff 2007. Remember, I'm in school and someone talked about the brain. Well, what I forgot to mention is my mom. So my dad lost my dad. My mom died. So here I am fairly young and I literally had a three-year-old and my mom died. And I was, and I was not into neuroscience until that. Okay. So up until 2007, I wasn't, I was just, you know, coaching and doing my thing. Um, and it was really challenging. Anyone who has lost a parent, so I'm an orphan with a baby, no one else can relate to that. And I was in a, you know, I don't think I was depressed. I was just grieving grief. I was grieving. Okay. Um, and grieving is hard. It's hard. And because of this work in brain science, I literally said, what would my parents want me to do? They wouldn't want me to be like this. And I just started to work and learn and learn and do gratitude and do my mental, like do mental fitness work. And I now am incredibly positive. I mean, I literally am a different person as an adult, as an adult. So I want to offer a message of hope here that you can do this. It's possible. You're not, you know, a wall of the brain. You're kind of how you were as a 10-year-old. It's not going to change. Absolutely not. That's old science. We know that from the work of Michael Mesronick and some other amazing neuroscientists. That being said, how do you do it? Okay, there's a couple things you have to do. One is um, this work requires embodiment. I mean, you got to do some stuff in your body. It's not thinking. You actually have to, when you are doing some physical um, activities, such and often it's really applied mindfulness, essentially, then you are moving from a certain part of your brain in your cortex to another, another network in your brain. Okay, you're moving from your default network to your task positive network, different, different network. And by doing that, you move to what we call the sage brain, which allows you to have empathy and joy and love and creativity and be more focused. All these wonderful things that you want. So you really do have to do, you have to intercept the negative pattern and you have to stop yourself. You have to, we call it self-command and you do it through physical activities, through embodiment, breathing, little simple things can do it. And then from there, you're like, I'm shifting to a different, you know, different thought pattern. Um, gratitude is huge. There's a couple other techniques that we use, but you do have to go in and work it. You got to go to the gym. We have a mental fitness gym on the app. You got to go in there and work it. Because if you think overnight, I want to change, you have to do the work. Like just like getting really fit or run training for a marathon, right? It's no different. Well, I'm, would you agree that I think in today's culture and that we've grown all grown grown up in and it's gotten exacerbated over the past 15, 20 years too. The moment our eyes are awake, we're in task mode and it activates the analytical network in the brain and we immediately jump in. And then the challenge I would ask the audience is how fast from the moment you wake up, how how long is it? Is it seconds or is it minutes before you reach for your phone? <laughs> like how, how quickly do we activate our task mode? 
And then once we've done that and we've activated that part of the brain, we've already told the sage, we don't need you today. Go, go, go. Yeah. To, you just stay asleep. We're going to go on. Uh, me and the rest of my friends, the saboteurs, we're going <laughs> we're to launch forward and get this list done today. And as a result, yeah. then we get exhausted. Our cortisol levels are up. Our adrenaline levels stay high. All the things. And then what happens is it has a direct impact on the physical health and well-being of our bodies. Because yes. our brains are designed to be the right pharmacy for us to release the right stuff. So how, how often is part of the mental wellness that you recognize or that you help coach is that how do you get people to, to not do that, to not engage that, or at least to find the space in any given day to go into that mindfulness place where they can turn the analytical network off, go into that place of meditative calm, which is the only place where the sage brain can kind of really be there and be present. How do you help people get to that point? Well, a couple things, a couple practical things, and I'll, I'll guide you through them right now. The first is I tell my clients all the time, stop sleeping with your phone. Just stop doing it. Put your phone. Well, I have to because someone's going to call me. Well, put the phone in the bathroom or get a, get a landline. Go back. Oh, no, no. So the, the, my clients are all OK. So just some basic brain hygiene absolutely stops. It is if you want to be better and smarter and have higher cognitive peak performance, you must sleep. And stop sleeping with your computer. I mean, just go get a go get an alarm clock. So I love that. Love, love that. And particularly for parents with kids, absolutely, you know, prioritize sleep. So that's easy. Second, what's the first thing you do when you get up? What's the first thought? You put those feet on the ground. Let's start rewiring there. Are you doing something of gratitude? You know, what's my intention for the day? You know, 5 a.m. club kind of stuff. You know, what are the three things? And if you don't have time to get up and do a meditation practice, then when you are walking, when you're taking your shower, brushing your teeth, feel the physical sensation. Feel the glass of cold water. So literally, you feel things. So for example, if Jeff and everyone here, just take two fingertips and rub them. You can do it with me. Yeah, take two fingertips and rub your fingertips together. Feel the nuances of your fingertip ridges. You are activating your sage brain just by physically feeling things. Okay. So little things like that, when you're walking, let's say you're walking to the car or you're walking your dog, just notice the sensory information coming in. Look at like, look at the color of the sky right now. Leonardo da Vinci, the maestro said, you should look at the color of the sky seven times a day and notice the sky. Little things. So you're, you're having more visual acuity. By doing that, or really have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, really enjoy the sensations. You're putting attention on these physical sensations, which quiets down that saboteur region because you are really activating a different network in your brain. You don't need to spend a lot of time. You can do it in as much as 20 seconds, one breath. Breathing is probably the most powerful. It's ancient contemplative wisdom tradition. We know the Navy SEALs use breathing, high athletes use breathing, mindfulness. All of this stuff is not woo-woo. These are, these are practices that give you a competitive cognitive advantage. And it's, it used to be when you'd hear this conversation, I might even be guilty of it 20 years ago, 15 years ago, right? I started this company 11 years ago, all around this, these ideas of brain science. But 15 years ago in corporate America, if I'd have heard this conversation, I'd have been like, what a bunch of bunk, what a bunch of, what a bunch of voodoo artists. Like, what are they even talking about? But it's been validated now, right? With actual neuroscience, functional MRI, EEG, blood work. We, we've yes, validated yes. 
this. And so it's to your, it's really is to your disadvantage. And I like the words you use there. I've heard several other scientists use that word intention. But what triggered what you said in me was having, putting your attention on intention, right? So that idea, we're, we're not very intentional. With, no, with this. we're autopilot. No, we're on autopilot. Yeah, I mean, I think what I know people are overwhelmed. My clients come to me, they're, I call them in my book, cognitive capacity overwhelm. They're overwhelmed. And we know because of the pandemic, overworked, so much going on, on the screen. I mean, we can go into that. I know you've had wonderful guests talk about that. I'm like, okay, let's get the one or two things that are going to do it. We're not adding more on your plate. You have to breathe anyways. You have to breathe. Your, your brain is going to breathe. Breathe then. In be, before you go on the Zoom or before you go to the next meeting, take an intentional breath. You know, do a quick box breath for inhale, hold, for exhale. Okay, when you're drinking the coffee, take a sip and just be in the coffee for 30 seconds. You can do that, okay? When you are walking your dog, put away your phone, take five minutes and just look at the trees. That is applied mindfulness. In my book, I call it being present aware and focus path we don't call it mindfulness that has got spiritual you know people don't like that word are you path that is being mentally fit and in the methodology i use and your listeners will get more information there's a boot camp there's a six week we have an app where you can actually go into the mental fitness gym and do these exercises to train yourself so this is within a reach of every single one of your listeners it doesn't have to cost money, and it's stuff you don't have to add much time. It really isn't. When you're with your kids at dinner, just notice their faces. Are they smiling? Are they laughing? Put away, you know, just spend a minute and just look around the table and feel gratitude. That will help with your mental fitness. Little baby steps, tiny baby steps will, it's called self-directive positive neuroplasticity. Little things happen in the day. Hold on to it. Notice it. Take a deep breath on it you're rewiring your brain. That will help your mental fitness. Think of how much time we waste in a day. Oh, yeah. Right? Th think of it. Think, think of how much wasted time there is in a day. And what you're asking us to do is to just be mindful for a little bit of that time in a new way. And, you know, but around here at Brain Trust, they always joke, I call the, my, the shower the eureka tank because I said every you know, idea I've ever had, I think that's been worth anything in my career, I've, I've come up with in the shower. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but the eureka, the shower for me, the white noise, the, 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 the sensory of the water, um, it allowed me to turn off my analytical network and go into that deep, open, anything's possible, divergent right. sage brain. And, right. and then all of a sudden the ideas are given to you. Now, I'm a spiritual person, right. so I, you can, you know, depending on your philosophy out there, I believe those ideas get deposited. They're not, they weren't there. I had to access them. Well, I'm not going to access them through my analytical network because I'm in task mode. And, and so I know the difference. There's days when I get in the shower and I'm running my agenda, I'm running my calendar, I'm running all those things. And guess what? I, I actually get out of the shower more stressful than I got in when I walked into the shower, right? <laughs> you know, you and I were cut from the same cloth here. Absolutely. When you're in the shower, enjoy the shower. Let your brain, it's not a coincidence. The science supports that, Jeff. You're letting your brain make connections and, and mind wandering is what, it's not a waste of time. You actually, you know, there's so much, so many wonderful stories about scientists and artists who have their, or like you, Jeff, you have your best insights when you are letting your body relax. It's not a coincidence. So how do you get a little bit more of that in the day? Right. How do you build it in? I work with my clients and we just build in these little breaks 
two or three times a day to keep your mental fitness battery charged so you are less reactive and less stressful. But it is, it is um, you know, I, I'm sure you know this and your listeners, so important. Your brain has a built-in negativity bias. So you have to retrain it. You have to do this work. Otherwise, you know, you are going to move towards the negative for survival. So this, this, this neuroplasticity and mental fitness really is the way to counter that. And I've, I've experienced nothing that I have done or I recommend to my clients or now your listeners are things that I have not personally experienced. Yeah, that's great. You, you mentioned, I want to touch on this because I think this is such a unique concept. You talked about letting your mind wander and that, that phrase is, got, gets used all the time. In fact, you know, we criticize kids for what, hey, focus, your mind's wandering. Um, and, and I thought about this. If, you, if you're listening today, wherever you're at, you might be in your car, you might be in your office, look around the room that you're in and start to just pick up on what you see. That's, that's the universe of known in your mind right now. And the only way to learn or access something beyond what you see is to wander. Mm-hmm. So in your own mind, you only see consciously, analytically, what's in your mind's room. Yeah. And the only way to access new stuff is to leave the room, right? And the only way to leave the room is to let your mind wander, which is to access that part of your brain that doesn't have any limits, but we're not built for that. No, 100%. And mind wandering, that's tapping the default mode network. It's really lovely. I mean, again, you want if you know, if employees just sitting there looking out the window, you know, it's a good thing. Now, if they're doing it for a half an hour, (laughs) you know, maybe not. But absolutely, I really try to look out. I try, you know, also getting nature so much. The power of nature is huge. Fresh air, all of these. You know, it really is stuff grandma told you, isn't it? A lot. you know, a lot of it is common sense grandma stuff, but as you know from Brain Trust and my work and in my book with my clients, it, it's common sense, but there's science behind it. So I work with really hardcore analysts and super smart, really big cerebral cortex PFC. And I'm like, guess what? There's science to support this. This is not kumbaya and candles right. anymore. And then, and that's the beauty of being involved in this field is taking the science and saying, no, you need to take a vacation. You must rest. Working till one or two in the morning is junk drawer work. Absolutely. You just, it's, it's, the science doesn't support it. Take the shower. Let your mind wander. Enjoy that glass of wine or beer or coffee tonight. Enjoy it. It's not, you're not being selfish here. Yeah, it's, I think one of my, my new books I'm starting to outline, sketch out is, you know, Rick Warren wrote a bazillion copies, uh, bestseller in purpose driven life. Well, I, I think I've got a spinoff of it called present driven life. Oh, well, I'll th- buy it. I'll th- buy it. That, that's the you. idea though. The idea is cause I'm again, like you, I'm like the master cobbler whose kids have no shoes sometimes, right? Like I don't always do that. And so what happens is, is I'm out there just running and gunning, but the moments that I can stay in the present and do what you're saying, man, does life seem so much more peaceful, joyful, all the things that we want to feel, um, but we don't allow ourselves to do that because we believe the world has these demands on us that we have to perform. And all the reasons you said, right? Fear and self-preservation and all that stuff. So and this is really good stuff. Well, we could probably do this for another hour, but I want people to actually access some of your tools and access some of the assessments and access your book and all that. So can you help us uh, tell us what, what, tell us a little bit about your book, about anytime coaching, tell us a little about your practice. And point is, we're going to give you guys out there, listeners, an actual website you can go to to Wendy's as well to access some things just for our listeners 
but give us a little bit of background on some of the tools that, that you have that we can access. Well, thank you so much. And yes, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I love geeking out on this stuff. All right. So a couple things. One is um, for listeners, we created a special landing page and it's, um, and Jeff's going to put it, I think in the show materials, but it's um, Swire Solutions, all one word, swiresolutions.com dash the brain trust podcast. So swiresolutions.com the Brain Trust Podcast. And there you can also, so that's first thing. The second is you can always, if you Google Wendy Swire or Swire Solutions, I will come up. And um, on my website, you'll have lots of information. I would welcome your listeners to email me and you'll get that information and copy my assistant. And we will get you a copy of the Saboteur Assessment. You can take that and you'll get the results. Um, there'll be information about how if you're interested in bringing this, this methodology to teams and groups, that's all there. We can send you that. Um, my book, Anytime Coaching, um, available on Amazon, second edition. Yeah, that's really about anyone can learn some basic coaching skill. We have a very simple model it's an, under a practical leadership series. And it really is about listening, observing, asking questions, and um, being really present, how to do that. And again, we have really simple, simple, simple. We don't want to, you know, simple means can be more elegant in some ways. Um, We want to, you know, again, for mindfulness and and, and mental fitness, there's other methodologies. So just reach out to me. I would, this is my math. This is my passion. My mission in life is to bring this to people. I really want to kind of spark this positive change in the world. People understand a little bit more about their brains. So anything I can do to support you and, um, you should have all the information you need there. That's wonderful. All right. We really appreciate the tools. Uh, go to SwireSolutions.com, get her book, uh, Winnie's book, Anytime Coaching. And obviously, SwireSolutions.com forward slash The Brain Trust Podcast is a special link for you listeners. And this has been great. And I feel like maybe we'll have you back on and we can unpack what we can do to help solve uh, our political landscape since you're an expert. <laughs> <laughs> I live outside of Washington, but uh, I love that. Yeah. Um, smart. Smart that you don't live in there yeah, anymore. I, 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 yeah, I'm nonpartisan. Um, thank you so much. It was a real opportunity. So much fun. And when you get that present driven life, I'll be love to get a copy. Yes, that would be great. I'd love your input on that as we go along. So uh, this has been great. And I've I'm always rechallenged. I have great guests like you on to go back and live out the principles that we teach and coach that sometimes we don't always do ourselves. And so I need to go have some mindfulness time after this now, I think. Yeah. And, and follow your curiosity. Your brain is so hungry for learning new things, not just the same old thing. If you want to learn pickleball, go do it. Just train, feed your brain. It, your brain is starving for new. It's loves, it just loves new things. Love it. Well, Wendy, thank you very much. We've really enjoyed having you on. What a privilege. Thank you very much. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. 
Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.